Her Storians. I'm your host, Heather Ashley, and welcome to another episode of Women of Her Story, a podcast dedicated to celebrating women who have made or are making their mark on our society. Today, I have with me health and fitness author, ex-bodybuilder, and LGBTQ advocate, Amazon Letty. Thank you so much for joining us today, Amazon. Thank you for having me on your podcast. Of course. Well, before we get to talking about your foundations, projects with the Obama administration, and other amazing accomplishments, I think it's so important that we talk about your arduous journey getting there. Can you tell us a little bit about your upbringing in Saigon and later in Australia? Sure. Um, Where where do I start? I'll start from uh, the the top because it makes sense in terms of, you know, who I am today and the work that I do. I'm a transracial adoptee. Um, I spent my formative years in Australia as a child before moving overseas and it was a period you know when I think of what we're, what we're going through now with the Trump administration you know I went through that as a child growing up in an all-white background which is very challenging when you're growing up in a background that's not your own mm-hmm. but then a government on top of that that publicly says, you know, we don't want to be Asianized and we're being invaded by Mm. the Asian community. So I encountered just a tremendous amount of racism and bullying and discrimination. I think I've had probably every Asian slur Mm. said to me, though I have to say through, you know, the pandemic, and through the coronavirus racism, I have had a few new, you know, other <laughs> racist things that have said to me that I've thought, oh, that wasn't said to me when I was a child. <laughs> oh my gosh. You're like, oh, that's new. Wow. Yeah, that's kind it's of- evolving. <laughs> what? <laughs> yes. And so it was really challenging, you know, um, one, being confused around my sexuality as a child, but also growing up in this all white background where society didn't like me being Asian and felt Mm. that I was invading their country and not really knowing what it meant really when people kind of said to you, you're, you know, it's an Asian invasion and you're being, you're you're invading our country. Like we were some kind of aliens out of of space. Mm. Um, So I do, you know, through the Trump administration, understand this whole kind of anti-immigrants rhetoric that's going on where you're completely othered constantly Mm. and you you don't feel like you're part of the community and part of society. Um, So I had a very low self-worth and very low self-esteem as a kid. I just had such a bad image of being Asian and, you know, coming from the Vietnamese background, um, they called us you know, um, prostitutes, thieves, and farms. Oh, yeah. So that's who we were. And, you know, every Asian group had their name. You know, the Chinese lived in flats and they hung their washing outside and the community couldn't understand why they did that. Mm. They didn't like, you know, the Japanese weren't like because they went into the nice parts of 
the, the city and their mm -hmm. kids went into the private schools, but the community not realizing it's not them, it's their companies that are assigning them to a new mm -hmm. country and a new post and giving them all of right. that. And, you know, there was this kind of difficulty in terms of just being Asian and living as an Asian person and people being afraid of Asian bodies mm, um, mm -hmm. in a way that I see, you know, I can, I can, I, I can have this sort of understanding in terms of how black people feel in terms of this fear of black bodies, where mm -hmm. it's this un unrational fear that makes no sense. Right. At, at all, that can't be, explained um, I never saw an Asian person in the media or on TV so I had no point of reference in terms of a positive image of myself or just seeing myself mm, so you're just being bombarded with people telling you what it means to be you in an Asian body yes and then not having any reference what it is to be me and mm -hmm. not having any positive reference of being an Asian person and the Asian kids that I did meet you know they came straight from Asia and they kind of huddled in their groups and um, they weren't they weren't Vietnamese and they came from you know Asia because their parents came over for work and they saw a difference in me because I wasn't brought up in an Asian background. I was brought up in an all whites mm. background. And I was actually brought up white as well in a, you know, a white racist background. So there's that kind of uh -huh. intersectional identity complexity that mm -hmm. many transracial adoptees experience where you don't feel like you fit anywhere and you're living in limbo between two different worlds that don't necessarily accept you and where you don't fit in. And it's very challenging to find your place mm -hmm. um, when you're living in limbo. It sounds like, you know, with the kids who were coming over from directly from, you know, Asia and you being alienated from them, because, you know, I guess to them, maybe you're not Asian enough to be with the Asian kids or <laughs> white enough to be with the white kids. So you're just stuck in this. Who am I? What am I? What is going on? Yes. And, you know, transracial adoption is a very complex form of adoption where your identity is erased and you're brought up white. And it's a, for someone who has never gone through this, it can be a difficult concept to get your head around of like, how can someone erase your identity where they clearly see that you're Asian and bring you up as a completely different mm identity and that confusion as a small child where you're brought up from one background but you look in the mirror and you see something completely different and you're mm -hmm. quite confused by um, that concept yeah that's that's one of those things where where people are really realizing now the the damage of not seeing color like of that whole that whole thing that was so popular, what, 20, 15, 20 years ago, where it was like, no, like, don't see color. Everyone is, is like, no, you still, ha you have to acknowledge the differences to then find the similarities amongst people. Yes. And, you know, it, it, it is very damaging when people say, oh, I don't see color. I just see you. One, you're erasing my racial 
identity and in terms of racial equality, we can't get there until you actually, you're color brave, you know, don't yeah. be color brave, you have to be color brave. And I say that, well, if you don't see color, how do you know when to stop at traffic lights? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like, like, what does the world look to you in monotone? Yeah. I, 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 I say color and you have to acknowledge people's difference you can't go through the world thinking no I don't see color I just see love and and people everyone's the same it's like well we have similarities but no we're we're not the same there is racial inequality and you have to acknowledge that if not we will never dismantle it absolutely it's such an interesting conundrum because I think the idea behind the not seeing color is um a genuine one. I don't think there was malintent behind that movement, but uh, it was very obviously did a whole lot of damage just because, yeah, like you're saying, you have, you have to look at everyone's cultural identities are wildly different. And if you erase the color that is part of that, you're erasing an entire part of their cultural identity. If you, if, it's frustrating. It's frustrating that people are still not listening to that, especially when it's coming from the mouths of people who are experiencing it like yourself. You're like, no, you have to, you have to acknowledge it. You just have to. Yes, I mean, racial identity is so important and seeing as a child grows up and even as an adult, ad, as an adult it, it's so important to be able to see yourself mm. re- reflected back at you and you know and because of that you know i i had great difficulties with my racial identity and then my sexuality as well it was like a double multiple layers of intersectional identities Mm. that i was very confused about because i obviously didn't know the words for how i felt inside Mm. and the feelings that i had um, never, never met an LGBTQ person, didn't even know what the acronym was or what word it was. I just mm-hmm. knew that I was different. And I think, you know, kids, p- kids always pick up on a difference that you have. Mm. Um, and a lot of times, you know, kids aren't necessarily, you know, homophobic or biphobic or transphobic, but they use these slurs because they know it hurts Mm -hmm. so along with kind of the racial slurs i also had the gay slurs Mm. um as 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 well and kind of both hurt me because both were very um personal Mm -hmm. to to, to me and you know australia at the time really felt like its identity was being lost and being taken over by the Asian community. Though mm. the irony of it, just like, you know, America belongs to the Native Americans, you know, <laughs> Australia belonged to the <laughs> Aboriginals and it was colonized by British white convicts. Yeah. Yeah. We You really want to hang on to that identity still? <laughs> you really want that? <laughs> so, you know, for me as a child, it was, you know, I grew up believing that it was very commonplace to, to see racist slurs everywhere. Mm. I mean, I would walk out into the city center or my neighborhood and I would see Asian racist slurs on the side of buildings. It, it just, just 
ev- oh. ev- ev- everywhere. Wow. And, it, and for, for me, growing up in a society like that, I just saw it as normal but because I just saw it everywhere, but also confused by the w- way that it was so blatantly done and mm. everyone it just accepted it. And I remember as a young child, I'd had to go through a tunnel um, to get to the train station and kids would hide at the end of the tunnel, knowing that there would be an Asian kid at some point walking oh. through the tunnel. And as you walk, you do obviously a sharp right. And they would jump at you and do the whole kind of slanty eye thing that you, know, you still oh. see t- t- today. And people need to understand how traumatic that is for an Asian person when someone does that to their eyes and how yeah. offensive. It is because they don't know the fact that historically that has been done to us for decades from since we were childhood. Mm. Whereas that person may have done it, you know, yesterday thinking I'm the first person to do that too. It's like, no, it's been since childhood people have been doing (laughs) that. So it's kind of a a deep pain that an Asian person feels um, with that kind of gesture that you see. And I just remember walking through the tunnel every single day, just seeing these horrible Asian slurs and telling the train master, you know, you have to paint over this because I find it very offensive and hurtful. And him just kind of casually saying, oh, we don't bother because it's going to be there the next day. Ugh. So just this kind of normalizing of racism towards the Asian community. So I never had a strong sense of self or a strong sense of worth. And I just remember as a child, just spending so many times going into the bathroom, trying to wash away the Asian Mm. and looking in the mirror and still seeing that I'm Asian and wondering why people just hated me so much because I was Asian and not really understanding Mm. that um, at all. And, you know, not having a very positive image about the Vietnamese community Mm. either in the way that people would talk about us because we're both people and telling us to, you know, row back to where we came from that, you know, we weren't wanted in society. Mm -hmm. And even the family that I was brought up up here. And I remember, you know, going through the Vietnamese area with my adopted father and having the window down and and just as we had stopped at the traffic light, he told me to wind my window up because, you know, this is a bad part of town where the Vietnamese live. A Vietnamese person may try and grab you or steal something out of your, you know, the back seat of the car. And me just kind of thinking, but I'm Vietnamese about me. And it's just so confused about that conversation of but I'm Vietnamese and, and I just remember just thinking but I'm Vietnamese what what does that mean about me <laughs> wow that's crazy that's crazy what I I don't I don't understand that thought process like maybe maybe he had just I don't know forgotten intentionally I don't know that's crazy that someone would say I, that I I, I I don't understand I, I don't know <laughs> I, I, tr- I try not to bring logic <laughs> these thoughts anymore but you know for me this is an important journey step because you know so many asian 
people go through this type of racism, mm. uh, even if you're not, you know, a transracial adoptee and you haven't been brought up in an all-white back background, but even more so if you have, because that experience of people complete, I mean, it's a hard thing to get your head around that someone, when people, people completely erase the fact that you're Asian and talk to you as if you were not, as if you were actually a white person talking mm. about an Asian person. Yeah. It's, it's, a, it's, it's quite hard for people to get their head around. It's like, how can you erase that? But it just, you know, and I just kind of, you know, remember as a child that people would pat me on my head and say, you know, oh, the adopted child, or this is my adopted child, and then kind of switch to then you're also the adopted child mm. um, as, yeah. as, as, as well. Um, so, you know, I really struggled as a kid because I just felt like I didn't belong um, being brought up white I was very confused about my cultural identity mm -hmm. and who I was as an Asian person never seeing myself and to be honest you know Asian representation in the media now isn't that great in Hollywood we still only make one percent right of leading roles I you know there are numerous occasions where I can turn on tv and I'll never see an Asian face and mm. if it, it is it's within a st stereotype I was gonna say when it is it's probably in a very limited capacity of like the type of roles that they're given yes so we you know usually the sidekick or you know I always say to people next time you watch tv look at the commercials and if there's a safe role like a teacher or a doctor or someone that will be the Asian role. Mm -hmm. So we always play like the safe mm -hmm. roles. And you know, it, it really is true. Like people say to me, Oh, you know, if you had a superpower, what would it be? And it's like, no, Asian people are already born with the superpower of invisibleness because we are born into this invisible model minority myth mm. that creates this, strange stereotype where people just don't see us mm. they don't assume anything happens to us mm. you know when when they're talking about you know particularly around the u.s elections they will always talk about the black and latino vote but the asian vote is left out but we're the fastest growing racial group in the u.s and by mm. within the next 20 years America will be a majority Asian. One in 10 people will be Asian. I actually think it would be more like Australia where it's like one in five, one in three people mm. because they predicted that with Australia, you know, 20 years ago and, and no one believed that the country will become majority Asian. And mm. that's the way, you know, America is heading. And in the swing states, you know, our vote counts. Our, our voting mm -hmm. capacity now has gone up over 100 percent but because we're seen as this invisible model minority race people don't think of us as a you know a, a force to be reckoned with right you know and i wonder i wonder if that has to do with um the i i feel like the stereotypes surrounding a lot of asian culture is the like quiet mild-mannered submissive stereotype so I wonder if that is part of the reason why people are like just kind of brushing it aside. You know what I mean? Yes. And part of that is, I mean, 
you know, that we're very defined in our stereotypes, you know, Asian men are very effeminate. They can't be masculine. They can't be the leading man. Asian women, we're geisha-like, we're very submissive. But Asian women have two stereotypes that we fall into um, for the fantasy of, and fetish of, you know, the Western mm -hmm. world. We're either geisha and submissive or dominatrix. Mm -hmm. No one fits into this one stereotype of either of those women or, or men, you know, it's just, it's not that <laughs> it's really not that. And it's crazy that people still are under that impression. Yes. And I feel that, you know, Asian, the Asian community, we're kind of, we're always clumped together as this homogenous modernist community, mm -hmm. but you know, the Vietnamese community is very different from the Japanese community, Absolutely. very different from the Filipino and, and Thai community. And then they kind of say, you know, we all look alike. It's like, you know, we're, we're very distinctive. Very different. Nothing <laughs> like a Korean person or yeah. a Japanese person. If, you know, if you confuse me with another Asian racial group, it would be Chinese because of many Vietnamese are, you know, Vietnamese, Chinese, right. and part of China. But, you know, outside of that, we're very, you know, culturally, we're very different. So different. So, so different. And I think for a lot of people that I think that becomes the confusion as well of, you know, how do you break down the Asian com com community? Mm. Um, and so they just try and kind of clump, clump us all um, together which mm -hmm. creates obviously own um unique problems absolutely absolutely so you made it through homelessness and suicidal thoughts as a young adult what advice do you have for young people especially members of the lgbtq community who are going through similar situations sure i mean you know obviously through my kind of difficult childhood and teenage years you know when I moved overseas I, I hold a lot of trauma in you know I didn't have a support network I didn't have any mentors I didn't have anyone that looked like me I didn't even meet a Vietnamese person until my late teens mm. you know I, I didn't meet an LGBTQ person until my late teens e either so that lack of support network I, you know, it, it compacted in terms of my own mental health. And I always kind of say, you know, we're always one paycheck away from poverty. Many of us are one paycheck away from poverty and one person away from falling into the bad crowds. Mm -hmm. And, you know, one thing led to another as a young adult. And I think, you know, I was a ticking time bomb. I just had to kind of explode and express myself and all the pain um, that I went through as a child with, you know, the, the bullying and the, the, the racism and everything, you know, I just ended up in a bad crowd who, who took me in and gave me the support. But on top of that, they were just a bad crowd, you know, mm. drinking, drugs, partying 24 seven, you know, I, I, you know, I was, I was, I didn't really have, that much money so I, I lent you know leaned on them for 
supports and you know one thing led to another and I spiraled out of control and I ended up you know homeless for a number of years mm. in and out of shelters um, and it really made me realize you know how society treats you when you're at the furthest edge of society on the, the, the margins mm, mm-hmm. um, I was always suicidal. I had severe depression, um, heavily in debt. My mental health was really bad. And, you know, I just, you know, I begged once in the streets and it was just so humiliating the way people just brush you off and look at you as if you're completely insignificant and that you're Mm -hmm. just not trying um, at all you're just sitting there thinking but you don't know my story if you only if you only gave me a chance yeah <laughs> and I just remember um, it, it was kind of an epiphany where I slept for two days straight I just could not get up mm. and I got up on the third day and I was in a shelter at the time and I just remember just sitting in a fetal position in the corner crying for the next 24 hours thinking what mm. has become of my life I could not get any lower and I remembered what happened to me as a child so you know besides being bullied as a child by the school kids in society I was also bullied by my teachers Mm. and when I was a kid one of my teachers made me stand up in the class I think it was about 30 kids or so Mm -hmm. and said to everyone this is what failure looks like (gasps) and most in life I will be the kid that will fail and if I do succeed I will just become a potato peeler if that what and I just remember I mean I must have been what you know seven or eight so (gasps) I'm like a little kid just standing there thinking oh (laughs) no one absolutely no one believes in me no one likes me because I'm Asian no one believes in me and just thinking I can't cry because if I do everyone's going to laugh even harder at me and then I just remember sitting down and as I sat down the teacher threw the blackboard eraser at my head (gasps) just hitting my forehead and dropping and so that moment when I was homeless at my lowest point I thought of that thinking this would be my greatest failure if I ended it right now. Mm. It's kind of, you know, what that teacher said to me just kind of gave me that kick. Mm. And I just remember thinking I have so much more to give when I have absolutely nothing. I don't know what it is, but this is not my time and I have to pull myself out. Wow. And it was the hardest thing that I have ever had to do mm. finding that strength. And I really bring it back to sports, my life in sports of how this created this survival technique in terms of learning very unique skills mm. um, from s- sports. Right. And, you know, I mean, I had a nervous breakdown doing it. It wasn't easy and it <laughs> took me years to re- recover. But now when I look back and I think of, you know, particularly LGBTQ youth experiencing homelessness because LGBTQ youth make up only like three to 5% of the entire youth population, but over 40 to 50% are made homeless. It's an absolute 
epi epidemic. And because kids are coming out younger, kids are being made homeless at the age of 10. Yeah. There was a recent report, and this is, you know, out of all the states in the US, um, a news report came out um, just in Georgia by the Georgia State University. So this is thinking about, this is just one state in, in, in an entire mm -hmm. country of 300 million. So you think about all the other states. But the report stated that, you know, in Atlanta on any given night, of what they know, there are at least 800 LGBTQ youth experiencing homelessness. Ugh. And there's only one shelter that specifically helps LGBTQ youth. And I think they have about 20 beds and they get over 600 calls. Oh my gosh. A, a month. I mean, obviously majority of the youth homelessness comes from the South because it's very conservative and the Bible belt. And then they try and find their way to California mm -hmm. and the East coast thinking that there's something there for them, but usually obviously there's nothing there right. um, for them. At, at, at all. So, I, you know, going back to your question in terms of, I think, you know, having kid, kid, kids nowadays, you, they have so much more in terms of a support mm -hmm. network in terms of, you know, being able to go online to the internet, being able to connect to groups on Facebook. You know, you have helplines like the Tre Trevor Project, particularly if you're experiencing homelessness, you can, I'm um, experiencing suicide. Mm or thoughts you can call them up and have someone for mm -hmm. a, 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 a chat I think you know having a support network is really important but I understand not you know I, I didn't have one so mm -hmm. you know what do you do when you don't have um, a, a support network you know don't be afraid to ask for help you know mm -hmm. if you're in a city that doesn't have an LGBTQ specific homeless shelter. There are other shelters that at least you could go to, or maybe there's an LGBTQ center or mm -hmm. a hotline as, mm -hmm. as, as well. Um, you know, if you have access to the internet, there's, you know, there's so many LGBTQ support, support groups mm -hmm. um, as well on the internet. And I think as well, try and, read as much as possible. And, and this is why I do share my story because it does get better. And I think when you're in a very hopeless situation, you think that there's no light mm. at the end of the tunnel, that it's just kind of never ending misery because that's all you know. And particularly if you don't have a support network and you have no money and you're sleeping on the street, you think, how is my life going to get better? Mm. And, you know, I share my story because I want LGBTQ people or anyone who's kind of going through, you know, this kind of struggles that I have that, you know, it does get better. And, you know, your current circumstance does not equal your entire life. Mm. You, know, mm -hmm. you, you can find a way to make change mm. it may not happen instantly it may take many years but you can get there mm. um, and i think hope is always important because i never had stories that were similar to mine as a kid that i could look to and think mm -hmm. you know that's my story <laughs> mm -hmm. you know and also i think um like your your current circumstance doesn't define you as a person 
you know, that's just, just because you're experiencing this, you know, horrible time, that does not mean that that equals who you are. No, not at all. And I think sometimes it's hard to see that when the the world sees you in this moment Mm -hmm. and defines you as that person who doesn't contribute to society, Mm. you know, who's destitute, you know, what, what goody you are, Mm. you know, to the community that you live in because, you know, that's the world that wants to spin that twist Mm. um, on, on you. And I think, Mm. you know, it's, it's very important for people to understand that, you know, your current circumstance doesn't define you and is not your future. Mm. I think of the time when I was homeless, you know, that wasn't in a pandemic. And I think how difficult it must be for LGBTQ youth and people that are homeless right now during a pandemic and also those that are, you know, stuck at home with relatives and families Mm -hmm. that don't love and celebrate them. I mean, it's already, you know, the stats have already come out that, you know, domestic violence has gone up, you know, a hundred. Yeah. Um, percent um and i think you know coming out of the pandemic you know we have to think differently in terms of how we unify unify you know the community how we support our most vulnerable with Mm -hmm. different community programs as as well and we have to prepare ourselves that you know if we ever have another pandemic we need to know the right steps Mm to take and you know hopefully we have the right governance in place mm-hmm. um as as well because i i look to asia and i think so many parts of asia are back to normal because mm-hmm. you know they acted early mm-hmm. so you have come out of all of these situations during your life with a passion for advocating for others what are some of the programs you've been able to participate in um, you know, it's it's really as as you've said, you know, through my own personal journey of, you know, never seeing myself and never hearing my story, and the importance of being able to hear your story and see a mirror image of yourself for the first time. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I I started sports when I was a a young kid, and that was basically, you know, I wanted to find a sense of community, and I was just being teased all the time. It's like, you know, where can I go besides the library <laughs> to, to sports? And then, you know, when I entered into sports as a kid, just not seeing myself in sports and being the only Asian kid in sports and seeing the bullying and discrimination and racism following me into sports and seeing how people treated Asian people in mm. sports. That was my first instance of how people saw me as an Asian athlete and the mm-hmm. things that they said to me that you're geeky that you're slow that you could never be a sprinter and pushing me out of team sp- sports where team sports sh- should be a place where you can find unity but I just mm-hmm. found it a hostile mm. um, in- environment and I went into bodybuilding very young I was s- six at the time when mm. I fell into weight training but then you know I didn't understand realize that bodybuilding you know is a very misogynistic very sexist locker room Mm -hmm. 
um, to, and I experienced a terrible amount of sexism and misogyny Ugh. Um, in bodybuilding and in the gym. There's a reason why when you walk into a gym, you mainly see women on the cardio equipment and men on the weights mm -hmm. because it's very hard for a woman to, you know, step onto the weights floor when, you know, there are all men all looking at you, you know, thinking and saying, you know, horrible things about you and to mm. your mm -hmm. face. So a lot of my advocacy I do now stems from sports, using sport as a platform for mm. equality and, you know, championing LGBTQ equality through sports. Because I think, you know, when you're working in countries where you have hostile situations, you know, everyone loves sports. It's a sport, it's a language that everyone understands and mm -hmm. brings people together. So I work with governments all around the world, having closed door conversations with them and open door events um, with different governments, bringing in key stakeholders from community leaders, business leaders and other governments. So we can have conversations around equality through mm -hmm. sports. Um, and then in terms of, you know, being Asian and what it is to be Asian in the community, because we face very unique challenges and, and barriers because we're part of this invisible model minority race mm -hmm. because, you know, there are a few stats, uh, you know, about the issues that we face. And also when you look at sports, there are very few professional Asian athletes and Asian out mm. ath athletes. So I talk again, you know, with governments all around the world, community leaders and corporations around the challenges and barriers that, Asian people face through sports, in the workplace, in society. Um, many multinationals, they struggle mm. when they work in an Asian country because they look through a Western mm -hmm. lens. Mm. So I speak to corporations in terms of looking through an Asian lens and the mm. challenges and barriers that Asian staff face um, in the business world and what that means to society in terms of how we're treated as probably one of the few global Asian LGBTQ advocates in the world that does this kind of high level governmental and yeah. um, business work. Um, and I've been very fortunate that, you know, I have been able to work with heads of states, you know, the, the, the White House, um, at the moment I'm leading with the UK government around sports equality, looking at Tokyo 2021, wow. Beijing 2022, wow. um, you know, Qatar World Cup, the Commonwealth mm. Games, because we just haven't been a moment in history where all the major sports events happen to be in Asia. Right. So have this very specific conversation in terms of equality across the continent of Asia, mm. what mm -hmm. that means in, in the West and, you know, the West responsibility in terms of championing equality mm. in more hostile countries, mm -hmm. different continents, because you can't have major sports events without the support of governments and right. multinationals and, you know, governments and multinationals when they are in different countries, it's not just about, you know, taking money and doing business. It's also about what are you doing for the community mm. as, as well that you're working in.
Absolutely. Sports <laughs> in general has very toxic gender norms. In Absolutely. Terms of, you know, this is a woman and this is a, a man and these are the sports you should p- play. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we're challenged now with what's going through sports in terms of, you know, trans inclusion and people that are non-binary who don't even fit into man and woman. What do you do with mm-hmm. teams? I, I really think that we have to think really differently about sports now mm-hmm. that sports are starting um, coming out of the pandemic. But also, you know, there's always been this stereotype with women in sports, if they do something that's more athletic or muscular, that you're gay. And mm-hmm. that's, that, that's the stereotype <laughs> that you, have. You, you, must, you must be gay. Bodybuilding has always been this kind of strange, unique cult sport that, you know, obviously was made popular by Arnold Schwarzenegger mm-hmm. because it really turns femininity on its head. And, mm. Well, you know, women can have muscles but still maintain their femininity. But men in bodybuilding, and because it's so male-dominated, they, they've struggled through the decades in terms of women who, who are very muscular, but still very feminine and bodybuilding, the federations and competitions have changed over the years because of that factor of not wanting to accept Mm. women who are muscular in sports. So I knew very early, I was told, and I could see very early on, when I was a kid starting in the gym and, and going into bodybuilding and obviously eventually competing in my teenage years that mm-hmm. I could never come out. Um, it was made very mm. clear that this is a very heteronormative, you know, mm. very masculine sport. You know, there could be never any gay people in sports. I could, I, I could never see that as a possibility of ever coming out mm. in sports. So I just kind of put it to aside. Oh. And men felt very invaded by the fact that I was in their space. And you have to realize that I was only about, you know, eight when I started going to the gym Mm. and it was completely male dominated. And I'm an Asian Mm. kid as well, which was, you know, I I was, I was breaking down every single stereotype that you could kind of think of between being Asian, you know, and 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 a woman and men were very vocal then in terms of not liking women in their space I mean I count just just the the, the worst amount of you know the thing the things that President Trump say Mm -hmm. that was said to me but you you have to realize I was only eight yeah I was gonna say you were a baby what at the time and men were just so sexist, so misogynistic, you know, to my face, behind my back while I was still standing there with them. So, you know, obviously men don't, they, they know now not to say these things, but when I walk into a gym, I know exactly what they're thinking because I have been around it my entire mm. life. I know exactly what, you know, men are thinking. And for me, it's kind of given me this, superpower Hmm. as an adult because I've spent all my time around Mm -hmm. adult men you know from you know the age of like seven Mm -hmm. um also when you know obviously you know at that age you're spending time with kids and bonding with other you know Mm -hmm. other young girls so I learned a lot about men and their behavior Mm -hmm. and I kind of know that they're very simple creatures to observing them but it's given me this interesting superpower that you know I can 
confidently walk into a meeting room full of all white men or just all men in general and own that space mm. because I've had to learn to own it from, you know, the time I was a child. Mm-hmm. Um, so for me, it's kind of given me, you know, an, an interesting, unique skill um, that I can utilize really well mm. now. And I can see it in men's faces of <laughs> just a little bit of a, 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 a confusion because yeah. one, I'm not the Asian person that woman that they think I am, but then at the same time, there's this kind of edge to me that they can't really un, un, understand, mm. um, and so they they can tend to feel a little bit threatened um, mm-hmm. by it because of yeah. the fact that I've spent all my time around men and just kind of observing them. (laughs) Yeah. You're like, you did this to me. (laughs) (laughs) I can absolutely understand though, when a woman goes into the gym now of how threatening and uncomfortable it can feel because men think that they're the only person looking at you. And one, you think there are mirrors in the gym. So I can see your eye moving at me where at any point that I am. And you're not the only person looking at me because all the men, Mm -hmm. you know, and they they don't realize how uncomfortable it makes a woman feel when you step onto the weights area and they're just all. PSA to everyone. There are mirrors in the gym. We can see you if you can see us. (laughs) So what, what is next for you? What's next on the docket? I know it's hard to um, say that with, you know, everything having been on hold, but you're, you're already working on stuff for, for the Olympics and all of that. Is there anything else on the, on deck and no book or anything? Yes. So um, in 2014, I became the first athlete, Asian athlete ally ambassador and they're an organization based in the US that challenge homophobia and transphobia in sports. Mm -hmm. And then at the end of last year, I became the first Asian Stonewall UK um, Asian ambassador. So I do a lot, I I, I mean, I've I've never known a moment when I wasn't involved in sports. I think the pandemic has given me the longest stretch of not being able to go to the gym Mm. And I've come out feeling like, oh, wow, this is what it feels like for everyone else who never goes to the gym. <laughs> I really don't like it. <laughs> you know, it's like my longest stretch because I've always, like every single day since I was like, you know, a, you know, a, a kid, mm-hmm. I've been lifting weights. So, you know, I'm continuing my work. And, I've, and I have to say, during the pandemic, it's been my, one of my busiest years mm. that's I've ever had. And I think it's because everything is done virtually the whole, you could, mm-hmm. like, I've been able to do so much more. Whereas before I could only travel to one place and that was kind of it. So I've been, you know, working with governments all around the world, having different conversations around mm-hmm. using, you know, sports as a platform for quality. I think, you know, what's been happening around the pandemic with, you know, racial injustice um, and inequality. So I've been having lots of conversations around that because, you know, there's been a terrible amount of COVID related racism Mm -hmm. globally towards the Asian community. I've never seen this kind of hatred since I left living in Australia, Mm -hmm. just 
you know, just for being Asian. Right. And we've had, you know, some terrible incidences across um, the the U.S. that they've had to set up hotlines. They've got the FBI involved Mm. in New York now. They have a special Asian police hate crime task. um, Wow. Force. I've been doing a lot of work around racial justice mm-hmm. um, as, well, as well and obviously supporting the Black Lives Matter movement. There have been so many things that have it's just it's I think it's just been a lot <laughs> going <laughs> yeah. on in the world. Just yeah. like so much. And I you know what I'm working towards now are conversations um, leading up to Tokyo twenty twenty one. I'm also working with um, Copenhagen World Pride mm-hmm. as well coming up next year and then the launch of my organization mm. in Atlanta in 2021 so a, a number of years ago in my own country Vietnam um, I piloted the first actually it was the first in Asia it was a leadership sports business and education program that mm. looked at providing very unique skill set to LGBTQ youth experiencing homelessness and fast tracking them into career path mm. development. Amazing. It was very challenging to get off the ground just with a different mindset and obviously issues around being LGBTQ and living with HIV. But I knew if I could get it off the ground in Vietnam, I could take that template anywhere. Mm. And I'm so glad, you know, I persevered because in the end I had the support of the US embassy, the Irish embassy, wow. UK, even the pop star Usher, his organization, Usher's <gasps> new look. Um, they, they partnered with me, um, Nike, <sighs> APMG, Baker McKenzie. Um, so I'm now launching it next year in Atlanta. And initially I was going to launch it in New York and you know, it, it, and I kind of, so, you know, I always kind of wondered, well, you know, where are the kids coming from? Mm. And I remember just being at a church one day in Manhattan in a meeting and the pastor constantly picking up the phone. And I thought, mm, she picking up the phone, you know, we're in a meeting. Um, and I asked her and she said, no, you know, these are kids calling from the South. They mm. move through, the, they move, you know, through different states in the South, go to Atlanta, nothing there for them and come then and then call on the way mm. to New York. And we say, you know, we have 20 beds, they're all full, but we can tell you the safest pier or train mm. station to sleep at. And oh. I think, gosh, how heartbreaking. I can't wait for the kids in New York. I have to go down mm-hmm. to the heart of the problem. Mm-hmm. And I love um, Atlanta and I, I'm so glad um, to be launching it ne- next year to mm-hmm. support um, LGBTQ youth experiencing homelessness. So I've got a, a lot of interesting things um, yeah. going on and I'm already, you know, into 2022 planning with all the major sports events happening um, that, that year mm. as, as well. Wow. Wow. That's amazing. I have done a lot. I mean, my June for Pride Month was the busy, one of the busiest Pride Months I had for years, mm. um, I think I did like 20 virtual events. I can't even remember. Oh, I, 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 I lost <laughs> counts. Um, but, you know, I think professionally, it's been a fantastic year. It's been very busy. But personally, you know, it has been difficult. I, I'm, yeah. I'm not going to lie. I mean, pandemic's been difficult for, for everyone. I mean, a pandemic isn't meant to be. <laughs> it's easy. But I've learned, I've learned so much about 
myself, I've learned so much about others. And I think it's, you know, given I, us the time for us all to reset and think differently about the world that we want coming out of the pandemic and the people that we want empower and also how we need to unify as a community because we're stronger together than we are apart because mm. so many different communities have, have been going through mm-hmm. so, so much mm-hmm. um, and it's been you know very very challenging for mm-hmm. everyone I mean I kind of think in the US you have what 50 million unemployed practically yeah. another 50 million that are going to be evicted I mean that's nearly half the population mm. and that's of what we know you know and and then you have all these terrible fires and an administration that doesn't care and it's just like it's it's a lot for one person to (laughs) on top of that you know you're having to try and manage your mental health Mm. Mm -hmm. uh, as 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 well you know people would you know i think you know i think we have to give ourselves a break and if some days that we just sit in beds and watch Netflix or read, read a book all day, or we can't get up or we only end up doing one email. That's okay. Mm-hmm. And I've realized, you know, those are the, that, that's, that's, that's okay. Mm. Um, I have a friend who says, you know, if you can do 20% of what you need to do that day, that's okay. And mm-hmm. if part of your 20% was sending two emails and that's all you got done, that's okay. Mm-hmm. Because the world has slowed down anyway, mm. you know, the rest of the world are probably only doing 20%. So <laughs> it, it, it doesn't matter. <laughs> Find me someone doing 100% and tell me how they got that. Like, <laughs> yeah. 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 <laughs> no, I, I think it's the new normal that, you know, every day is PJ day. <laughs> like I've totally lost interest in going to the shops I have I haven't dressed up since I don't know early March (laughs) (laughs) you know that's it's so funny that you say that because I uh I stopped into a thrift store the other day uh just I I love thrift stores I think I think you can find some of the coolest stuff in in them and um I also am a big fan of like is it kind of tacky then I need it I need it. That's like me as a person. And so I I went in and I found these like really awesome dresses. One is this fully rainbow sequin dress. It's all sequins and it's rainbow sequins. I was like, yeah, yeah, no, I need that. So I got it because it was like $8. And then I got home and I was like, where am I supposed to wear this to? I have nowhere in the next five months that I could possibly (laughs) wear this. So it might just be like a grocery store dress, you know, who knows? (laughs) Oh, I know. And I think, you know, I was watching, uh, it was, oh, it was some time ago now, probably a a month or so ago, there was a guy on US news and I thought that's the perfect analogy. So he was doing a zoom call with the news presenter and momentarily he got up and where he obviously totally forgot because he had a shirt and tie on, but underneath he just had socks and his underwear. <laughs> and I thought that's everyone now with Zoom. It's like the perfect analogy. I'm just like, yeah. <laughs> I've got a top on, but underneath it's just like underwear. Yeah. 
yeah. Oh, right now I've got like a nice black shirt and then uh, definitely wearing Under Armour shorts. It's fine. <laughs> I, th I think we're all going to struggle to go back to wearing, you know, actual pants yeah actual pants <laughs> like i haven't worn jeans i think you know, oh, oh my gosh that's so funny well we've talked about you know how you grew up without really a support system you had to find your own do you now have a support system that you're able to turn to when you're feeling overwhelmed and you do just want to sit in bed and eat popcorn you know, they always kind of say, you know, who's your chosen family? Mm -hmm. And, you know, I have really close friends. You know, the first gay person that I met, you know, is still my friend. And we oh. speak every, like, ev every day. And if we don't speak every day, sometimes he will text me and go, are you okay? We didn't speak. It's like, yes. We <laughs> oh, I love that. So, so you know, I have a, a chosen family. And I think, you know, we all need to find that chosen family that becomes our support system. Mm -hmm. um, and I've obviously immersed myself in the sports community and in the LGBTQ um, community as well. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. What is the best piece of advice that you've received so far? You know, always make yourself indispensable. Mm. No, I remember when I was a kid, you know, I didn't get that much advice, but <laughs> that, that, that was one bit of really good ad, ad, advice. And so whatever I do, I always make myself in, indispensable. Mm. Um, and, I, and I think it's, you know, I, I believe, of, you know, being the jack of many tr trades. Mm. You know, if you're going into a work environment or some kind of, project you know make yourself indispensable let people know that you just don't do one thing you can do multiple things mm. well and you're prepared to you know put in the hours do whatever it takes mm. to get there and I think you know I have that kind of do whatever it takes mentality mm -hmm. um, and for me that you know as a kid that's that's all I had it's kind of advice I gave gave to myself hmm. when you know no one else believed in me when I didn't have any ment mentors I thought you know I have to give myself advice hmm. in terms of being able to follow my dreams and do whatever it takes to mm -hmm. get to get there mm. that is excellent advice Another bit of advice I gave myself, you know, when no one else believes in you, make sure you believe in you. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. you know, and, and if you do, do that, you know, you will always get ahead because I've realized in life, you can't ever count on other people, unfortunately, believing in you. But as long as you believe in you mm. and, and believe in your dream and believe that you can get there. Absolutely. Well, before we get to our last two questions, is there anything else that you would like to add where we can follow you, your foundation, um, anything else that you would like to discuss that we didn't touch on? 
Sure. So people can follow me at amazonletty.com. That's my official website. All my social media is at amazonletty. Um, I'm also the health and fitness writer for Live Strong. Um, mm. And that's at Live Strong. What do you do there? I write about what I know best, uh, weight, <laughs> weight training. That's so awesome. That's so, that's so yeah, cool. Yeah, so I've, I've got a few new articles that have um, come out, like how, how to do a workout with a gallon of water. Genius. Um, you know, dump, dumbbell work, workouts. Um, yeah. <laughs> that's so cool. I love they're, they're that. Like quick 20 minutes workouts and I have books as well I've written a number of um, bodybuilding mm -hmm. I'm actually you know I'm actually one of the few Asian health and fitness authors um, if you go in, and I was really shocked when I um, became a published author many years ago I became actually the first Vietnamese international published author that's crazy and, i mean even now if you go into barnes and nobles or your local bookstore and go into the health and fitness section you most likely will not see a health and fitness book written by an asian person that just makes no sense to me at all I, that is crazy that's crazy yeah it, it I, I i i was sh sh shocked and since i wrote my books that you can still buy on Amazon, Barnes and Nobles or any local bookstore. Um, I've probably only counted maybe one or two mm. Asian health and fitness writers. It's not something uh, it's people think, you know, and I think this is the same thing in terms of Asian representation in media. I mean, cr when crazy rich Asians came out, it was like, it took 25 years to get there. And even then they questioned, would people really want to go and see an English movie just with Asian faces? And I think you turn on TV all the time and see TV shows just with white faces or white and black faces or black faces. Mm -hmm. But you know, you can make money off China alone. Like there oh. are more people in the continent of China than there yeah. are in, I believe, you know, in India or Africa. <laughs> yeah. I'm and like and I, people were so surprised at how well Crazy Rich Asians did. It was the most popular romantic comedy of the year. And then we had this phrase, oh, Asian August. <laughs> and now you're seeing, you know, particularly Henry Golding, many more leading mm. roles mm -hmm. um, with Henry Golding or other Asian faces, mm -hmm. uh, you know, we have now, you know, Asian superheroes that have just, people are mm -hmm. starting to realize that we're, we're a spending power and we're, <laughs> a, and yeah. a, it's, it is a strange concept that people still have this kind of stereotype that, oh, people won't be in, in, interested it's the yeah. same it's yeah and it's a similar thing with like people are like well women there's not an audience for women-led films and i'm like are, you mean over half the population being women isn't an audience for this what are you talking about like and even in health and fitness writing there aren't that many asian mm -hmm. and if they are we're probably more led to more leaning towards the yoga than mm. bodybuilding and or like a cookbook in terms of the health like yes cookbook book, because you know chi you know chinese cook yes mm -hmm. definitely but in kind of my 
genre. Mm -hmm. I'm kind of one of, you know, very few that you could probably count on one, one hand. Mm -hmm. Um, And this is the, you know, these are the challenges and barriers of what it is to be Asian that struggle to be Mm. seen and, and acknowledged in spaces where we should be Mm -hmm. seen. And I get it all the time as uh, particularly now with my advocacy work when where i walk into spaces that have no asian faces and i'm trying to discuss what it is to be asian and the challenges and barriers that we face Mm -hmm. and you know then they say can you show us the data and i'm like well there there is so little data because we're just seen as so irrelevant i mean even when you look at lgbtq youth homelessness and I will see some reports that are like 50 pages long and there'll just be one strap line about the Asian community. Oh, only 1% mm. of Asian youth are made homeless, but it hasn't gone into the reasons why. And I think the homelessness for our community is most likely larger, but also there are reasons why we don't come out mm. E- mm. E- either. So, you know, I, there's, there's still so much more work mm. um, that needs to be done in, you know, me- media. I mean, you know, the Oscars for the last two years have mm. not had a host. Never in history has the Oscars ever had an Asian host. Mm. So they didn't have a host. Because obviously with what happened with um, Kevin Hart when mm-hmm. he dropped out over his controversy, mm-hmm. they didn't even think that they could have hired an Asian host. Yeah. And all that time, actually during that time, um, Hollywood actor and comedian Ken Jong he came forward and said, I would be perfect mm-hmm. to host the, the Oscars. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's the problem that we have we're just never given these platforms or mm. we're never seen as rele- relevant i mean mm-hmm. you know sandra oh she's one of the few asian actresses that have been nominated and received mm-hmm. awards like people like lucy Liu, who has done amazing work particularly around the work that she did with the tv series elementary mm. Uh, love she, her in that she show. Directed oh my many, gosh. She directed many of oh. the shows and wasn't acknowledged for her directing, but also as well, she flipped the gender of that mm. role. It I wasn't know. a role for a woman, but she never received an, an Emmy. Mm. That's crazy. She was incredible. I'm getting all kinds of heated over here. I'm getting all sweaty. <laughs> <laughs> oh man i ask the same last two questions to everyone that comes through the podcast first what is your second favorite color i find that really interesting i thought no one's asked me that and i love how you go for the second not the first yeah (laughs) i I love lime green i just love the earthiness and the calmness of, mm. you know, a, a, a lovely kind of, you know, grass lime. Mm. Like the actual like rind of a lime, that type of lime green. Yes. I love, you know, I love the color green. I think it just has a, like a very earthy and very tranquil feeling. And I think, you know, we think of, you know, plants as well, because plants are green. And when we have lots of plants around us, how mm. calming um, that that is. Yeah, I'd be happy mm. wearing. And last, 
What, in your opinion, is the best part of being a woman? You know, when I read that question, I thought, you know, I have nothing to compare it with because I've always been a woman. <laughs> but, you know, this, this whole kind of stereotype, you know, that women are the weaker sex and this and that. And I think it's the other way around. I think, you know, this whole issue around women's wombs. Mm. And I think we're the most powerful human being mm-hmm. on earth. Like without us, there is no life. We give birth to life. Mm. And, you know, men need to stop and think about that for a minute that, you know, we can grow a human being. Like, what can you do? Yeah. 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 (laughs) And that's an an amazing concept when you think about it, you think like every single person in the world came from a woman. Mm. And, you know, when they have, you know, when, when they say like, if there's a tragedy, you know, you save the woman and children first because Mm. you only need one man but you mm. always need women. Mm-hmm. Mm. And I, I just like, I don't know. I, I, as I said, I've, you know, I've always been a, a woman and I identify as a cisgender woman. And I just love every bit about being a woman, but I just love this thought that, you know, mm. without us, there is no life and we mm. give birth to life that, you know, we can, we, we grow a human inside of us. Like, what can you do? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Like we, we are born with that superpower. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And and we can do it every year. Like, <laughs> what can you do? We can do it more than one time. <laughs> yes, I mean it's crazy to think about. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, like we we give birth to life. Like, what do mm-hmm. you do? Mm-hmm. Absolutely, absolutely. I love that. That's. <laughs> so good <laughs> oh my gosh well and i think that will be my you know my new job title like birth to life uh, yeah, yeah. What, what what do you do what do you do <laughs> can you grow a human inside of you no. <laughs> oh my gosh that is so funny but true. It's so real. It's so real. Women are amazing. We are superheroes. Yeah. And we're capable of so much. And there's so much, you know, when I travel the world and I think of the amount of gender inequality, you know, particularly when I'm going back to Asia where, you know, the boy goes to school and then the girl stays at home. Mm. And I think there's just so much gender inequality and that, you know, particularly around education that, you know, people need to, realize Mm. the the best part of being a woman is that when you educate a woman you know you lift your society and move it forward Mm. absolutely thank you so much for your honesty and your vulnerability with sharing your story i know it will help a lot of people and i i love that you have taken all of your circumstances and just turn them around to be like, I, I want to help anyone going through what I've gone through so that they don't have to, you know, experience these tumultuous pits of despair. You know, you're like, I see you, I feel you, I'm here to help. 
And I think that's an amazing quality to have to come through situations on the other side with lightness and happiness. Oh, I think so. And, you know, because we, we all need to feel like we have hope mm. in our heart for a better Mm. tomorrow because if we don't have hope it makes it very hard for us to get out of bed mm -hmm. um, e each day and I, you know I, and I do what I do as, as you said because I just remember what it used to be like as a kid mm. and just not, never seeing mm -hmm. myself and having to find my narrative from myself and make it up along the way and hope it worked mm -hmm. yeah yeah <laughs> Yeah, I mean, and I and I think you're you're still you're still writing your narrative, and uh, that's also something that I can see that you're not you're not stopping anytime soon. You're always on the hunt for growth, and spreading as much information and um, that that you can, and that's amazing. And we we're so pleased that you know you were able to sit down and talk with us today. It's a you're, you're quite quite a quite a story you have to share, and um, yeah, I'm sitting here like, all right, what what foundations should I start now? <laughs> <laughs> what 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 else can I do? What else am I doing? Let's let's you know, I'm like, let's be productive. <laughs> That's you you've got you've lit the fire in me today. I'm gonna like knit 10 scarves or something. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> oh, and thank you, historians, for tuning in again. Subscribe, rate, review, tell your friends. You know the drill. Follow us on social media um, Twitter at the Her Story Pod, Instagram at Women of Her Story Podcast. Visit our website at ofherstory.com. Until next week, be safe, stay healthy, and show the world what you're made of.